Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, news of the self-assembling origami robots, bears who might hold the key to curing diabetes, how hacking is soon going to be part of the school curriculum, and the comet chaser that's finally caught up with its quarry after a 10-year journey. Plus, we have food on the brain as we take a look at the science behind flavour, appetite and eating. We'll be trying unusual flavour combinations, learning about how sounds can affect taste, and looking at the microbial communities inside you, which could be affecting your mood. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Origami was once the traditional art of folding paper into ornate shapes, and it's now inspiration for the next generation of cyborgs. Robotics expert Sam Felton has built a real-life transformer that starts life as a flat piece of plastic. Then, with the application of heat, it bends itself into a shape and can even crawl around. Greer Jackson investigates. One of the great things about origami is it is capable of very complex uh, structures. And theoretically, origami can produce almost anything that you could want to use. So what have you designed and built? So we've built a self-folding, crawling robot that can fold itself completely autonomously. It starts off looking uh, like a roughly rectangular flat sheet, almost like the outline of a robot. And then once it folds itself, it looks more like the origami pattern of a bug or a crab. Why? What was the inspiration behind your design? So we were originally interested in making robots that were as cheap and quick to build as possible. We call this principle manufacturing. The idea is that you could make a robot as easily as you could print a Word document. And we started by looking at origami because origami can produce a wide range of structures and devices. But at the same time, producing flat sheets is very uh, inexpensive. And so you can print your inexpensive flat sheet and then fold it up into the desired machine. However, we found the limiting factor here was the time it took to actually fold these machines into place. For our experienced users, it would take about an hour for our first robotic designs to be folded up. So we wanted to find a way to automate that process and make robots that fold themselves. How long do they take to fold? Uh, This robot takes four minutes to fold. And how exactly does it work? How does it fold? So along each fold, uh, we have what's called a hinge. And uh, the entire composite consists of two layers of shape memory polymers, which is sold as a child's toy called Shrinky Dinks. And this toy, uh, when it's heated to a certain temperature, about 200 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius, shrinks by 50%. And we bond this to two sheets of paper. So when the shape memory polymer shrinks, it pulls on the paper, causing it to fold over at these hinges. And we trigger this folding through heated resistive circuits. And we supply these circuits with electricity. It heats up that area, causing the shape memory polymer to shrink and pull on the paper, causing it to fold. 
So when it's heated, it shrinks. Does that mean you end up with a robot that's much, much smaller than when you first started out? (laughs) Not quite. So the natural mechanism of this shape Mary Palmer is to shrink, but once we bond it to the paper, it keeps it from shrinking completely. Instead, what it does is pull on it, almost similar to how uh, your muscle in your arm, the muscle itself only shrinks, but because it's attached to two sides, your forearm and your upper arm, it causes the whole arm to bend instead. What uses could it have in the future? In addition to our idea of making robots quickly and cheaply, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for building things where humans can't go. We could use it for building structures in disaster zones or uh, sending in rescue robots. Personally, I like the idea of sending up uh, a ream of flat sheets into space where they could turn themselves into satellites. So what's the next generation of these origami robots? What are they going to look like? Well, we're trying to do two things and effectively expand the range of what we can build, both changing the geometries and the scales, as well as changing how we create the self-folding. On the scales, I'll actually be presenting in a couple weeks on folding simple objects that are 10 times as small. And at that scale, there's a whole different set of challenges, but we use different materials. Instead of paper, we use aluminum. And instead of shrinky dinks, we use heat shrink wrap, just like the kind you'd find in a supermarket. And why are you trying to build something smaller and smaller and smaller? Do you have an application in mind? Well, practically, we think it might be useful for building um, tiny robots. We've actually done other folding-inspired research before in our lab. We called it pop-up book MEMS, where we could build centimeter-scale robots from multiple sheets that pop up into their final form. And so I think we could combine self-folding with these pop-up geometries. But it's also an academic question, because theoretically, origami can fold anything. But what does that mean practically? Can we actually create things that self-fold into anything? And can you... Well, we're working on it, but it's getting better and better every day. That was robotics expert Sam Felton from Harvard. Now, if you go down to the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise, especially if you come across a grizzly bear. But the surprise is this. Bears can actually become diabetic during their hibernation and then simply switch it off again in the spring. If more can be done to understand how this works, it could lead to a solution to the epidemic of type 2 diabetes, which is a growing problem worldwide. Kevin Corbett, researcher at drugs company Amgen, gave Georgia Mills the bare necessities. Diabetes is a disease which is generally characterized as having high levels of sugar in your blood. Now, there are two types of diabetes. There's type 1 And that's where your body cannot make the hormone that is responsible for keeping the levels of sugar in your blood normal. That hormone is called insulin. And then there's type 2 diabetes in which the body, even though it's either making insulin or receiving insulin through medicine, cannot actually respond to that hormone insulin and the blood sugar levels remain high even though the insulin is there. Type 2 diabetes makes up about 95% of the diabetes, and that's increasing. And traditionally, it is associated with obesity. So to try and look at this, why were you looking at bears? If you just look at a bear that's preparing to go in hibernation, one would probably say that is a very obese animal. But to be sure, we put the bear through some tests that included trying to measure their waist, and yes, that was very comical. And indeed, the bears do get quite obese before they go into hibernation. Is this a bad thing, or is this necessary for them to survive the winter? When it comes to the bears, of course, they're getting obese for a very specific reason, because they're going to go lay down for five or six months and not eat. 
in order to survive that long period of fasting, you have to store a whole bunch of fat. Now, what's interesting is when they get obese, as opposed to what we think about in humans, we found that when the bears are most obese, it's actually when they become most sensitive to insulin. You can almost think about it as an anti-diabetes. And I think that was the first clue that we had stumbled onto something that was quite different between the bears and humans. Bears get less diabetic when they get obese. That's the opposite to humans. Well, what we think is one of the other properties of the hormone insulin is it controls when the body either stores fat or uses fat as a fuel. So you can think about it this way. If you are a bear and you are preparing to go into hibernation and you know you're not going to eat for five or six months, you would want to store every last little molecule of fat that you possibly could. It's kind of like putting a bunch of money away in your savings account when you know there are economic hard times uh, ahead of you. So what insulin does is it instructs the body to not break down any fat and to store fat instead. So if you wanted to store fat, you would want to be as sensitive to insulin as possible. In other words, you'd want to be very anti-diabetic. And indeed, that's what we find with the obese bears. Now, if you go and you enter hibernation, you, in order to survive, have to use the stored fat that you have. And so you'd want to prevent the body from responding to insulin. In other words, you'd want to become diabetic. And that way you could break down the fat and use it as a fuel source. And indeed, that's what we think the bears have evolved, this reversible insulin sensitivity or or reversible diabetes, if you can think about it that way. Uh, uh, They've evolved it uh, to tell them when to store fat and when to use it as a fuel so they can survive hibernation. So these bears can turn diabetes off and on, depending on whether they need to process fat or not. There's no known cure for diabetes at the moment, but could this be starting off on the right track towards one? I personally started to really rethink how we are treating diabetic humans. So without trying to be too provocative, I think by giving diabetics insulin throughout their lives, in the very early stages, this is a good thing because it does indeed lower blood sugar levels in humans. But in the long term, I'm afraid that we're doing more harm than good. So if we take a lesson from the bear, if I would inject you with insulin, throughout your life. Don't forget that one of the things that the insulin does is it instructs your body to store fat and not to break it down. So if you take it for a long time, what's going to happen is you're going to store more and more fat. And you can think about a cell in your fat tissue like a balloon. If you keep injecting that with more and more fat, what happens, of course, is the balloon gets much bigger. And that is obesity. If you wanted to live in an ideal world to treat a diabetic, is you would want to utilize the existing insulin in their blood and just turn up the uh, ability of the cells to respond to that insulin. And that's what the bears have figured out. And we hope we can translate that to humans. So hopefully that treatment won't involve sending diabetics into hibernation. This week, the European Rosetta probe has caught up with the comet it's been chasing for more than 10 years. Rosetta can now finally begin to deepen our understanding of these mystical celestial entities. To find out more, Greer Jackson spoke to one of the people who designed the Rosetta probe, Emmanuel Cupido from Imperial College London. 
This week, Rosetta began its real mission. After 10 years in space, Rosetta has now reached the comet and will start orbiting around it. So the real data will start coming down to Earth from the next weeks onwards. And this is the first time it's ever been done, isn't it? That is correct. There have been other missions which flew past comets, whereas Rosetta will be with the comet for a year and a half. So this is why Rosetta is very ambitious. One other aspect is there's a bunch of people in Germany at the European Space Operations Centre who are in charge of driving the spacecraft while the spacecraft is 400 million kilometres away from Earth, while being hit by gas and dust. In theory, there could be chunks of rock coming off the comet and hitting the spacecraft. So there are all sorts of challenges with this mission. You've sort of touched on a bit on why... Rosetta really is so ambitious. But why is it so important to find out about comets? Well, comets are perhaps the least studied and understood of uh, celestial bodies because they come and go. So it's very difficult to study them from Earth or from space because they are not there most of the time. You need to go and find them. On the scientific side, comets brought life to Earth in the forms of hydrocarbons, perhaps, which then started to combine and react with the primordial environment. So one of the aims of Rosetta is to go and detect in situ the chemical and physical properties of the comet and find out what a comet is actually made of, whether there are dust and water, ice, or more interesting chemical compounds. So by looking at something like a comet, you can actually tell a bit about the origins of Earth. Well, that would be the ultimate goal. If um, indeed that the scientists managed to make a link between what's on the comet and the theories of the origin of life on Earth, that will certainly be probably one of the discoveries of the century. That was Greer Jackson speaking to Imperial College's Emmanuel Cupido. Coming back down to Earth now for our next piece, and we've been hearing a lot in the news recently about the effects video games are having on children. Well, this week, a scientific paper from Oxford says video games could be beneficial, even improving cognitive or intellectual ability. However, another paper by scientists from Dartmouth College claims there are negative social impacts if children play violent video games. So who and what should we believe? I went to talk to Duncan Assel from the MRC's Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge. The two studies look at the relationship between how much video gameplay children engage in and different kinds of psychological and social factors. And what these two studies have both shown is that there is a significant relationship between how much video gameplay children engage in and different kinds of psychological and social factors. So why do you think they found different results? So one of the studies has shown that a little bit of gameplay, so up to an hour a day, can confer some benefits relative to playing no games at all. Playing a moderate amount, so playing one to three hours a day, has no real effect. And playing more than three hours a day, so what they refer to as heavy gameplay, has a negative effect. 
Some of these games are really taxing of particular cognitive skills, like attention, you have to kind of ignore distractions, or memory, you have to remember where various things are within the game. And they would argue is that when you play a little bit of the game, you get the kind of cognitive benefits, but you don't spend so long playing the game that you don't experience everything else in the world around you that's important for cognitive development. But we should also flag up that there are some problems here. So one of the issues here is that the relationship may be significant, but it's also often quite small. So in one of the studies, for example, the, the effect of the gameplay actually accounts for 1% of the pro-social or hyperactivity measured in these children. So in real life, you wouldn't really be able to notice that difference in your child. Absolutely. So yes, you would be hard-pressed to notice that kind of difference. So we've talked a bit about the Oxford study that found this benefit to the one hour of playing, but what about the other one that said that any kind of playing of these violent video games was negative? So one of the big differences is that it's different types of games. So in the first study, they, are, as far as we can tell, they're including any type of gameplay, whereas in this study, they're meaning very particular adult-like games. They followed the adolescents over time from around 13 through to around 18 and what they were able to show was that early gameplay, when the individuals around 13, would be predictive of subsequent problems with things like aggression and smoking and drinking. Isn't there something else going on here, though? Because I can imagine that a child who was already not very sociable might be drawn to playing video games in their room for hours on end because they didn't want to go outside and play. So how can we tell which way round the relationship is? That is essentially one of the inherent problems with these kinds of studies. So they're essentially what we call correlational studies. So they take a natural variability in how much children engage or for how long they engage in playing games and look at the relationship between that and other kinds of factor. We can't necessarily from that infer causation. So, for example, if we took a large group of children and we measured their shoe size and how many words they knew, their vocabulary, we would find a really close relationship between the two. And that's not because learning new words makes your feet grow. It's simply because the older you get, the bigger your feet become and the more words you learn. So we can't necessarily from this infer that playing the video games is causing changes. It could very well be, as you say, the other way around. So you work on what's actually going on in the brain when children practice various different things. Do these studies fit in with the kind of thing you've been finding? We're really interested in, in how children respond to highly structured games, and they're games that tax cognitive skills like executive functions. So executive functions are things like attention and memory, and we know they're really important in everyday life, and they're really important in the classroom. They predict really well how well children will learn and how much progress they can make in the classroom. And so we're really interested in, if you give children intensive practice, what kind of effect that has on the child's brain. And our early results suggest that there are some important differences and that you can train certain types of simple cognitive skill and that that does have an impact on the child's brain. That was Duncan Astle on video games. Now, today's youth may be playing more video games than ever before, but what about other computer skills they may need later in life, as technology becomes more and more central to our lives? From September, a new computer curriculum will be taught across the UK. So to explain a bit more, with us here in the studio is computer science teacher Mark Kalija. He set up an organisation called Hack Lab to help schools implement the scheme. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming on. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about how is the curriculum changing? What are our school kids going to be learning? Sure. Uh, all kids across key stages one, two and three are expected to learn a lot of things about computer science in general. And that's ranging from what we know as IT when we were at school, which is using Microsoft Word, how to navigate your way around Windows. It wasn't Word um, when I was at school, I tell you. Sure. <laughs> Basic. Sure. But, I mean, we've, we've gone back now to um, understanding that computer science is actually a useful discipline. It's digital literacy, effectively, because so much of the things in our world now are digital. If you can't use them, then you are effectively illiterate in a large portion of things that you have to do every day. I'd have thought that today's kids didn't need a lot of help to get on their smartphones and their computers. You can't seem to separate them from their digital devices. Are there particular things that they'll be learning that aren't just basically how to check Facebook without anyone noticing? We're trying to define the difference between consuming technology and creating with technology. Um, and so we're doing a lot of things at the moment with programming, make your own computer games. But at the same time, learning how to use those things is important as well. You don't really want students to just be jumping on their iPhone and people saying, well, oh, he's really good with computers. That's not true. You wouldn't call someone a good cook because they can heat up a Tesco ready meal. The food is there and you can see that the results are there, but they haven't actually done any of it. They don't understand what is happening. And certainly when I, when I was a kid, there was a lot about you know, programming in very simple languages. And now things have got simpler and simpler and simpler to use. Like I can set up a website using WordPress and it looks fine. And then my coder friends tell me, you're not coding. So is, is that the kind of thing, looking under the hood to actually understand a bit more about how these technologies work? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's important. Because all of these technologies are the things we use every day. Think about your internet banking. Okay, You don't understand how the security system works, but there are people out there who do, and they're going to exploit that. If everybody has a little bit of knowledge, then none of us are victims anymore. If we can teach the kids how to use the technology, how to protect themselves while using it, they can't be taken advantage of by these people who are exploiting basically your ignorance. Is it going to cover things like online privacy and, and all that kind of stuff, or is it more sticking with the how to use computers? No, online privacy is an enormous part of what we're teaching. I think it's the most important strand of what we need to teach kids. It makes a whole quarter of the curriculum as it comes out, talks about cyberbullying, talks about how to maintain your privacy online, keep your data safe. Could we be training our kids not to be idiots on YouTube? That would be amazing. That would be a huge <laughs> step forward, I think, yeah, if we could... Un understanding that once you put something onto the internet, it never, ever, ever goes away. It is always there somewhere. And why, why do you think that now is the time to actually really get computer sciences into the curriculum like this? Because, you know, we have had IT lessons for quite some time. Why is this change now needed? It's been needed for a long time. Everyone has sort of woken up to the idea that, wow, we really don't understand half of the way things work today. So it sounds like we are hopefully going to breed a, a generation of more tech-savvy, more internet-savvy children. What hope for us older people? Am I going to still have to get kids to help me to use a computer, even though I think I can do it now? I hope not. I mean, we, Hagler, we want to do some stuff with grown-ups too. We want to have mums and dads come in and say, here's what your kid is talking about. Okay, This is what Minecraft is. This is how you change the parental settings on your iPad so they can't buy a quarter of a million pound digger by accident, <laughs> uh, which is something that actually happened. Someone thought it was a toy. They bought a quarter of a million pound digger on mum's credit card because it was linked to her eBay. Classic. So things like that is what we're trying to avoid. So we will be working with grown-ups too, so never fear. Excellent. We'll sort you out. There's hope for us all. Thank you very much. That's uh, school teacher Mark Collegia. Thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and me, Ginny Smith. Now on to our main topic, and we all do it, some of us to excess, and none of us can live without it. Personally, it's one of my favourite activities. Yep, I'm talking about eating. We're going to be taking a look at some of the science of why we eat the way we do. What is it that gives different foods different flavours? 
And why do some foods go together better than others? Well, it's all to do with various chemical compounds that exist inside these foods and get picked up by our senses. Joining us is Dr. Sebastian Arnott from the University of Cambridge, and he's been studying the compounds that make up flavours. So what is it that makes different foods taste different? Well, every food has a, a unique combination of dozens or hundreds of flavour compounds, and um, these are compounds, uh, these are small molecules that we actually perceive in our nose rather than our mouth. So in our nose we have something called the olfactory epithelium, and uh, this this tissue can... Um, differentiate between all of these hundreds of compounds, whereas in our mouth we can only distinguish five different tastes. So is that why when I've got a really bad cold, everything tastes rubbish? Exactly, that's why, yeah. So you need that, that your nose to be able to actually taste those flavours. So if there are hundreds of these compounds, how do you find them and how do you find which ones are important for flavour? Well, you can put a food through a machine called a GCMS and that will extract all these flavour compounds and tell you how much of each compound there is. It will tell you the entire spectrum of, for that given food. And how many of these tend to make up a standard flavour, say a, a strawberry? Is there just one strawberry compound or is it a combination of loads of different ones? It will be a, a combination of at least dozens which play an important role. Actually, th- strawberry is an interesting example because in strawberry, there's no strawberry compound, but it is strawberry flavour is actually made up of a large number of very different flavours, which in themselves don't smell of strawberry. Fascinating. So it's all really interesting, but what can this kind of be used for? Why do we need to know this? Flavour chemists and, and uh, flavour scientists use this kind of information to generate artificial flavours. The, the work we were interested in was to actually look at a hypothesis that uh, the chef Heston Blumenthal put forward. He suggested that two um, ingredients might taste well together if they share flavour compounds. So we actually collected a large amount of data on what uh, foods contain what compounds and then drew a network of food ingredients uh, where we link two ingredients if they share compounds. Were there any kind of classic combinations that we all know, like pork and apple, that came out as actually sharing things on your database? Uh, Yes, some of the classics came out. And sort of if you look at the network as a whole, you do see that, for instance, meat and vegetables are neighbours in the network, and that makes sense from our everyday experience. And fruit and alcoholic drinks are neighbours, which makes sense if you think about cocktails, but also a few sort of unusual combinations. Yes, so on to those unusual combinations. And before the show, you gave us a few ideas for unusual combinations, which we've actually brought along here. Now, Kat, in front of you, there are three little plates. They're covered over. So I want you to reveal the first one and tell us what you've got on there. Oh, this is olives and raspberry. So I've got some little slivers of sort of the yellowy green olives and raspberry. Right, here goes. Okay, we've got raspberry, a bit of olive. Mm. What's it taste like? It's really, really interesting. It kind of, it doesn't have that really salty kind of flavour of the olive. It's sort of offset by the sweetness of the raspberry. It's, it's like It's like a chutney or something like that. It's very rich Ooh. kind of flavour. Oh, I definitely got raspberry first and then suddenly mm. the olive kind of kicked in. Why do those two work together? Sorry, you've got your mouth full now. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they share a number of flavour compounds. I mean, these predictions don't always work, one has to say, because the data is not perfect. But I think what this sort of automatic approach can give us is some suggestions for chefs or cooks to look at and, and try out maybe um, some, some new ideas. Yeah, I might, I might put some raspberries in with my olives. What, what we got yeah. here? What's this one? This is, ooh, ooh. now two of my favourite, <laughs> favourite things in the world. This is uh, blue cheese and dark chocolate. Right, I'm going to get stuck straight in here. 
cheese and chocolate. I don't know. That's a difficult one. I've I've been reading more um, recipes recently that are using dark chocolates as an ingredient, savoury things. So often with game, venison, that sort of thing. That's right. Chocolate has a lot of flavour components, so it actually goes really well with a lot of things. There's a, a American chocolate bar that has bacon in it, and I've actually had. I've tried that. I think it's horrid. <laughs> I actually I made yeah. I actually made cupcakes with bacon in them for a friend who was who's obsessed with bacon. It, it added something. I'm not sure it was an improvement, right? There are some people who believe everything is improved with bacon. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting. The blue cheese and chocolate is interesting. I don't get any of the sweetness of the Ooh. chocolate for me. I'm not sure it works well with dark chocolate yeah. rather than milk chocolate. So, so this is it's some, a very yeah. savoury combination. Ginny's not looking convinced at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. It's an odd one. Not that. sure. Papaya and parmesan. Right. Mm. Okay, here goes. Um, right. Mm. Now I can see this working because cheese and fruit is quite a kind of common combination. You eat cheddar with apple or with grapes, that sort of thing, quite quite often. What's it like, Kat? Mm, I like that. Mm. That's kind of the classic sort of sweety, salty thing. Mm. Yeah, that works. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think, um, if I remember correctly, the dairy cluster in our network, which was not far away from the fruit, we, we noticed already at the time that sort of cheese and fruit does does sit well in the network as well. And is this something chefs are actually using to create new recipes? Yes, I've, I've started to talk to, to restaurants and, and chefs and they're, they're really interested. This is one that may be a little bit specialist here. Uh, Ginny hates banana. It's banana and parsley. So I, I have to say I'm not very convinced by the look of this. Let, let's go. Uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not, not trying that. I hate bananas. <laughs> I'm going to pass on that one. I've, there's no way I'll like it, even with parsley on. What do you think, Kat? I think that's quite nice, actually. I think, yeah, I think that they, I think they, they're quite complimentary. So we've we've had a couple of successes today, but um, a few of you have tweeted us with your weird combinations. Chris says he likes fish fingers and custard. Weirdo. Neil Briscoe says he likes peanut butter and tomato sandwiches. Weird. Yeah, although if you think of peanut butter as being like a satay sauce, you'd eat that with vegetables. That's quite not common. Really tomatoes, though. But, yeah, maybe not tomatoes. But the so, custard and fish finger sounds very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll have to try that one another time. Yeah, maybe not. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm going to thank you for the blue cheese and chocolate one, but olives and raspberries is a revelation. That was Dr Sebastian Arnott from the University of Cambridge. Now, taste may seem to be all about flavour, but it is a bit more complicated than that, and your taste buds don't play as big a part as you might think. A recent study showed that people love salmon-flavoured mousse a lot more than salmon-flavoured ice cream. The catch being they were actually exactly the same recipe, only the name was changed, and this affected people's enjoyment of the taste. To find out about some more of the tricks of taste, I went to see Professor Barry Smith from the University of London. So I'm going to show you something a little bit strange. I'm opening this packet of um, Sichuan pepper corns. I'll give you a little one of these. What I want you to do is just chew on that. Right. That's a very strong perfume. If you smell, it's got a... Ooh, spicy, yeah. Spicy, peppery but kind of... Peppery mm, floral. Very aromatic. Very aromatic, very floral. So, so pop that in and start chewing. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. So, so here is another ingredient that we can add to the range of sensations. Mm. Now, it's quite strong, but does something mm. start to happen oh, to oh, you? Oh, tingling. Mm. Tingling. Yeah, look, it's, yeah, really tingly on my tongue. It's like... A, Electricity? Re- mm. Yeah, like really kind of, not quite the curry hot, but yeah, like something bad is going on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that tingling sensation, 
I'm Ooh. not sure I like this, you no. know. No, <laughs> OK. What's happening is that the active compound in Sichuan pepper is called shashul, and it stimulates the mechanoreceptors. It's actually making your tongue vibrate at 50 hertz. <laughs> <laughs> My tongue is vibrating. Certainly my mouth's watering. Your mouth is watering, yes. That's the other effect. When that happens, somehow or other your saliva glands just run and run and run. You may need some more water to deal with that. This is not exactly pleasant, I have to say. (laughs) Now, I've given you a tiny peppercorn and you don't need Mm. to have too much of that to have the effect. But um, it's interesting that that's vibration. So notice that what's actually giving you that sensation. Some people say, oh, is it burning? No, it's not burning. It is tingling, but it's vibration. It's pure vibration. And if you touch it, it can actually stop. If you actually got enough fingers on your tongue to hold it, you can still it for a little while. We can do this better on the lips. When people have a little bit of it on their lips, they touch the lip, you can still the vibration. So, oh, yeah. So, Right, so this I'm still is, dribbling everywhere. Though. You're still dribbling. I know. I may have to talk until you recover. But this is again just showing you that you've got vibration, you've got touch, you've got the stinging, burning, tingling of trigeminal sensation. You've also got smell. You've got taste. So huge number of senses are coming together, and yet very often when we get a complex dish, you think, ah, it's just one thing the flavour. So the brain is putting together a tremendous amount of information and computing it to provide a unified percept, a single experience of the flavour of something. Even though we now know it's a very complex fusion of many, many different senses. So if we think that that the taste of something is made up of these very, very complex interplay of our senses... What can we do then to to fool our senses or to make our food maybe more exciting or interesting? Yes, this is one of the things that chefs are obviously aware of, is that now they know that the palate to work on is including not just taste and smell from the food, not just the texture of the food, which is important, but there are other ingredients that they can use, including, for example, sound. So one of the strange things is that sound has an impact on how you taste things, on the flavour of things. But there's also another dimension of tasting we haven't talked about, and that is the fact that we get a temporal dynamic when we're tasting. Tasting is not a single experience. Tasting is a sequence of experiences of, say, a wine entering the mouth and travelling across the tongue and then swallowing. And when you swallow, that's when you pulse lots of odours up into the epithelium and you get that big hit of flavour. So if the tempo and the pace of something travelling across the tongue were to match the tempo of a piece of music then we know the brain is on the lookout for any matches and it probably thinks, oh, these are simultaneous or synchronous, pay attention to it. So maybe if you're in a wine bar and you're thinking, yeah, this wine's really nice and then you try it at home and it doesn't taste the same, could it be because the atmosphere, maybe the music that's playing there is affecting your perception of the taste? Absolutely it could be and I always say to people, you know, when they choose a really nice bottle of wine in a restaurant and they're looking forward to it, then they have to suffer whatever the duty manager has put on the CD and it may not work. (laughs) So, you know, don't like the wine, change the music. Maybe the music will actually enhance the wine, help you to pick things out. So I'm going to try and give you another indication of how sound plays a part in tasting. Here I'm going to see whether or not sounds are going to give you clues about whether something is sweet or sour or bitter. So I'm going to play you 
three noises. I'll play them first, and then I want you to say which one's sweet, which one's sour, which one's bitter, okay? Okay. So here we go. Here's the first sound. That does sound lovely. I think that's sweet. I'll go sweet with that. You're right. That's sweet. Let's try this one. Sweet, sour, or bitter? I think that's it's kind of sour, sort of acid that's drops. That's right. That's exactly what it is. And so the last one must be bitter. Let me just play that for you. Okay. Here's the last one. With that. So I thought that was great when you said acid drops because you can see why immediately the sourness, that sort of percussiveness, quick, high percussive, and it, you might think of it as being even sharp. And notice that when we say sharp, sharp's a feel. So see how easy it is for our language to do this cross-modal comparison. You're moving from taste to touch. You're saying it tastes, lemon juice tastes sharp. And of course, sharp's a feel. But it gives you that feeling then when you're listening to a sound of the, the percussive ting, 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 as opposed to the slower, softer tones of sweetness. And of course, the acidity receptors on the tongue, they will fire up more quickly and therefore you'll have that very fast reaction, whereas the slow onset of building up to full intensity with the sweetness receptors is different. But that was an example of how one trial learning without any previous experience, you could sort those sounds quite naturally into sweet, sour and bitter. It shows you that the brain is already associatively set up to compare sounds to tastes. Barry Smith there, broadening my taste horizons. Now, most of us know what it feels like to be hungry and also what it feels like to be full or to have overeaten after your Christmas dinner, for example. Our bodies have a few different ways to tell our brains they've had enough to eat. And most of the time, this stops us from overeating too much. But in some people, this process doesn't work. Not being able to feel full is a serious problem and a symptom of the genetic disease Prader-Willi syndrome. With us is Professor Tony Holland from the University of Cambridge. Hi, Tony. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So when I eat my dinner, how do I know that I've had enough and that I'm full? Well, the body has really developed a number of ways to, if you like, inform the brain that you've had enough to eat. So as food enters the mouth, uh, into the stomach, and then is absorbed in in the gut, there are really two major processes that are going on that feed back to the brain. One is that there are changes in the blood, glucose and insulin, where they have an effect on satiety, this sense of fullness. But also there are other chemicals that are uh, in the blood that actually influence the brain. And the second way that this feedback mechanism is happening is through a nerve called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve if you like, links the brain and the gut. And there are messages in both directions, both the brain altering the gut and the gut telling the brain food has entered the gut and is being absorbed. So it's really quite a sophisticated feedback mechanism that helps change us from a sense of hunger to a sense of fullness. So what happens if this system goes wrong? The the commonest example is, is severe obesity. The system doesn't regulate well enough so that you continue to eat when in fact you've had enough calories that the body requires, then of course you will put on weight. There are conditions, of course, where you lose weight too. 
So you work on Prader-Willi syndrome. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What exactly is it? Prader-Willi syndrome is, is a genetic disorder. It's often referred to as a neurodevelopmental syndrome. And by that, what is meant is that it's really apparent at birth. So a baby born with Prader-Willi syndrome will be characteristically very, very floppy. And there's a certain irony, really, here, because that baby usually can't feed very well and, in fact, often needs assistance very early in childhood to make certain it has enough food. But from about two, three, four years of age, you begin to see a substantial change. And, in fact, the baby and the infant will eat and eat and eat. And it's at that stage severe obesity can arise if people aren't aware that you need to control access to food, you need to limit how much food you give. That's one of the most characteristic features. There are a number of other features about Prader-Willi syndrome. They tend to have some, some learning disabilities. They are often a short stature because of low growth hormone. And also they don't develop sexually normally because of low sex hormones. And as a psychiatrist, I've also been very interested in the fact that they have often some problem behaviours. They may have a quite a high risk for a mood disorder. And do we know why they eat so much? Is it that they're always feeling hungry and why is that? These things, of course, are very difficult to assess because you can't readily get inside someone's brain and, and decide, you know, determine what's actually happening. I mean, our own work would suggest that that is probably the case. So both in terms of if you observe people with Prader-Willi eating and you ask them to rate how hungry or how full they are, or if you undertake now more sophisticated studies using some of the brain imaging techniques, it looks as if the brain responds to conditions of hunger in much the same way as you or I do. But in fact, if people with Prader-Willi syndrome eat even substantial amounts of food, the brain doesn't change in the way that it does as it would you know, if we had eaten the same amount of food. So it looks as if there is a failure of this feedback mechanism in Prader-Willi syndrome. So keeping control of the food is, is a way of stopping them becoming obese, but it doesn't actually kind of solve the problem if they are feeling hungry all the time. Is there anything you can do to change that? That is obviously what I think all of us are working towards, the idea that whether it's medication or some other intervention might actually suppress this feeling of hunger and dramatically change the life of people with Prader-Willi syndrome. But one of the things we've tried recently is something called vagus nerve stimulation. And we had three people with Prader-Willi syndrome who had one of these stimulators, which is a bit like a cardiac pacemaker, inserted. That then ran for, for many, many months in the hope that this would reduce the overeating behaviour. So you're stimulating that nerve that connects the stomach to the brain in the hopes that you might be able to change the messages. The reason we thought we should try it is theoretically it seemed to us if you if you like stimulated that nerve you might increase this feeling of fullness that's perhaps a bit naive however there is a good data to suggest that when people have vagus nerve stimulation for epilepsy for example and it's an approved treatment for epilepsy then a proportion of people who particularly those who happen also to be obese actually lose weight when they're on the vagus nerve stimulator and again this is over over months or even years so there is some evidence to suggest that this treatment might actually result in weight loss and did it work in your study Sadly, it didn't, uh, it didn't really result in very significant weight loss in, in the three people. One, one person, in fact, put on some weight and someone else lost some weight over time. However, there was an observation that particularly the parents and, and, and two of the three people with Prader-Willi syndrome themselves made, and that was that whilst on the vagus nerve stimulator, 
that many of the other behaviours, particularly the temper outburst, reduce dramatically. Now, these are behaviours that are very debilitating for people with Prader-Willi syndrome. They're often triggered by change and demands in people's lives, but they can be quite serious and sometimes last at their worst for hours. And what the parents were telling us was these outbursts essentially stopped. So if this was actually affecting their mood, would it be worth trying for perhaps other mood disorders, anxiety, depression, that sort of thing? Yes, vagus nerve stimulation is used for treatment-resistant depression, so it is a, a approved in many parts of the world for that. We don't actually think that it's having its effect through mood in Prader-Willi syndrome, although we can't be certain about that. We think that it's having its effect through somehow increasing resilience, if I like, reducing the arousal that people with Prader-Willi syndrome experience when there's something in the environment that they don't like. So you and I, by and large, we're able to contain ourselves under those circumstances. But for someone with Prader-Willi syndrome, they have really quite a low threshold for when they might lose it under those occasions. And maybe it's just raising that threshold in some way. Thank you. That was Professor Tony Holland. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and me, Kat Arney. Now, we just heard from Tony how electrically stimulating the gut might affect the mood and behaviour. But can this be done just by eating different foods as well? And we talk about, you know, good mood food and comfort eating. New research shows that the stomach-brain communications are complicated and it may involve billions of microbes that live in your stomach and in your guts. So to join us to tell us a bit more about them is Dr. Emeryn Mayer from the University of California. So first of all, tell us about these microbes. Where are they and what are they doing? Well, I mean, the microbes are really present all over our body. It just happens to be that the highest concentration of them is in our gastrointestinal tract with a gradient from the esophagus, stomach, small intestine to the colon, where we have the highest concentrations. The number of these microbes is staggering. It's up to 100 trillion of these microbes that live with us, which is about 10 times more microbial cells than uh, we have human cells. Um, And as I said, the majority of them lives in our um, large intestine. And what are they doing there? Are they just helping us to digest our food or are they doing other things too? It's a difficult question. They certainly do help us digest our food and uh, harvest metabolites that uh, we would normally lose because we don't have the enzymes to break down certain aspects of foods, like all the fiber components of food. The bacteria, they thrive on those things that our human intestine cannot digest properly. So they harvest a certain percentage of the food that we take in and change it into metabolites that then our colon can absorb and we can take advantage of these extra calories. So that's the simplest way to explain what they're doing. And that's probably the reason why they have been living with a host for millions of years. So you can even go back to grasshoppers, bees, and other primitive organisms that have their own gut microbiome. And we sort of hear a lot about the gut microbiome nowadays. It's very trendy. It's it's very sexy almost, if your gut bacteria can be sexy. Um, but thinking about how they may have more roles in our overall health and perhaps in our mood as well. What, what do we know about that? Their main function has to do with our metabolism and harvesting calories. So people have speculated, and this is clearly at this stage a a speculation, that they have developed capabilities of hacking into our own communication systems that are very elaborate, that link our gastrointestinal tract with the brain and other organs, with the liver, with the immune system, 
and that they have developed this, this ability to hack into those human programs and modify them according to their own needs. So um, our, our gut that, bacteria could basically be controlling us. So some people have said, you know, we're basically just a vessel that for the microbes to, to move around and and uh, optimize their own survival and thriving. One example is that they may have the ability to hijack our dopamine system, the reward system that drives us to do a lot of things, our motivation, but particularly that plays a role in food intake and that that may be one of the reasons that they play a role in the obesity epidemic. There are studies that the microbes not only can contribute to uh, obesity because of the mechanism of rescuing 10% of what we eat, what would normally not be absorbed, but also that they have the ability of changing the food preference and uh, ingestive behavior. And one example is uh, in a in a so-called knockout mouse, a genetically engineered mouse that um, lacks a certain receptor in the gut. That mouse is obese and it's characterized by having an increased food intake. So these mice are hyperphagic. They always want to eat. If you take the feces, the microbes in the large intestine and transplant them into normal mice, these normal mice will now eat a lot more food. So somehow, we don't know the mechanism, but it, it points towards the possibility that they can really connect into some very profound systems within the brain. I mean, as well as being a warning that you probably shouldn't eat poo from fat people, is this basically our gut microbes could be telling us what we like, what comforts us, what food we we that makes us feel good. And could this explain why, for example, in uh, people with sort of chronic gut conditions like IBS, could that be affecting their mood through their gut bacteria? The experimental data in humans is very sparse. So we were forced to speculate. However, there's very intriguing observations in animal models that would uh, suggest that. So for example, give you another example, the weight loss after bariatric surgery, for example, that is pretty sudden. Um, stomach stapling, um, basically. Stomach, yeah, various forms of stomach stapling and modifications. That initial substantial drop in food intake is related to a change in the food preferences. And we, we know that these gastric operations are associated with major changes in the gut microbiome. So again, an indirect but uh, intriguing speculation. It certainly that- is. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Emron Mayer from the University of California. Closing this week's show, Hannah Critchlow has the question of the week. This week, we turn our attention to selecting soundscapes. Hi, I'm Neil Briscoe from Gloucester. I find that I can't work with music playing as all my attention is on the music and it distracts me. On the other hand, I have friends who can't work unless they have music at loud volume blasting through their skulls via their headphones. Why does this difference exist? Music, a concentration aid or a complete distraction. Why do some people find it helpful and others disruptive? We listen out for Ian Cross, a well-matured and wise professor of music and science at Cambridge University, to get his thoughts. It's not just your age that will affect this. Your personality, musical preference, the particular task, your personal experiences or how musical you are all probably have an effect on how much music can distract you. 
When we encounter music in the background, as opposed to actively listening to it, it may affect us in two ways. It may affect our emotional state positively or negatively, <laughs> helping us to work better or causing us to work worse, or it may affect our concentration by inadvertently capturing our attention, diverting it away from the task at hand. On the other hand, it may have no effect at all. A group of German researchers looked at the many studies that have been done, and they reported that background music disturbs the reading process, has some small detrimental effects on memory, but has a positive impact on emotional reactions and improves achievements in sports. But, as they note, it's very difficult to compare results across studies because the methods and the experimental participants varied so much from study to study. It's reasonable to think that for some people, background music provides a means of giving a self-selected sonic texture to their surroundings, marking off a private space within which they can focus on what they're doing. Without background music, these people would be more easily distracted from the tasks that they're undertaking. For other people, background music itself would constitute too much of a distraction, diverting attention away from the task at hand. For both types of people, however, the important factor would be whether or not they liked and selected the music. Music that is present, without your consent, is always more likely to cause negative effects and impact on your performance on the task at hand. In other words, if your neighbour is playing music that you don't like and you have no immediate influence over them, it's much more likely to destroy your ability to do your work than if you yourself have chosen the music that's playing. Thank you, Ian Cross, providing us with a scientific excuse for politely asking fellow office workers, co-commuters or coffee-drinking cafe neighbours to either keep their music down or change the tune if they're adversely affecting our attention. Well, with that happily resolved, we shed a relieved tear or two over this question that listener Samira wrote in with. Do emotional or pain-induced tears differ? Is it possible to test tears and deduce if they are related to physical pain or emotion? If so, what is the difference between the two? Thanks. Could you put a tear under a microscope and see if that person was crying from happiness, sadness, or simply shedding crocodile tears? Is there some kind of chemical in tears that helps other people sniff out their true meaning? Hannah Critchlow there. And if you've got any ideas or crocodile tears to share with us, you can find us on Facebook or get in touch via Twitter. And we've had a few more of your weird combinations coming in on Facebook. Stephen says he used to love honey with cheese and onion crisps in a sandwich. Weirdo. That sounds pretty strange to me. We've got Amanda Van Reeden who says cinnamon with carrots. That's okay. I can see that. I've heard star anise with carrots. Uh, Razel Hanou, the Moroccan. That's really nice on carrots. That's it for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, Emron Mayer, Tony Holland, Barry Smith, Mark Kalija and Sebastian Arnott. Thanks also to Georgia Mills for production. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. Do join us next week when we'll be looking at the future of diagnostics and personalised medicine. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>